we were 15 minutes over in the last service, and it was all me. So we are in punt mode right now, because having gone through that service, there's some things and people that we know you absolutely have to hear from. So we're, gonna, we're uh, condensing stuff, the band's adjusting, everybody's adjusting, uh, and Mike said it in the announcements, many of you were, still weren't in here yet, this is a different service. Um, if you're new here, I talked to several new people afterwards and said, you know, I know that was a kind of a difficult service, sorry, and they said, listen, I've dealt with that for two years of my life. You keep going. This is a big deal. We're, we're talking this morning, um, second week of our fine series, about different things that people say I'm fine to. And one of the things that I've seen over and over again is people say I'm fine when it comes to the substances that they take into their life. My first interaction with that was um, I was first married. We worked with a couple. It ended in abject failure. They ended up leaving the church. Nothing had changed. We were frustrated. They were frustrated. We couldn't seem to help them. I drew some conclusions. It's the only thing that I got out of that whole time was I drew some conclusions. Let me share them with you. Because in the 25 years since then, these haven't changed much for me. I'm convinced that you need drastic change if you're addicted to something. You're going to hear people talk about that today, that need for a drastic change. I believe addicts are really good liars. And they're good liars because they lie to themselves first. They're so convincing because they believe what they're saying when they say, I'm going to change, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. But they don't change anything else. But they really do believe it. So they become convincing I'm convinced that addicts shift responsibility. I don't know how many times I've heard somebody say, well, it's this situation that's causing me to do this. If that person didn't treat me this way, I wouldn't have to do this. There's always somebody else who's responsible outside of that situation rather than you. And the last one, I think they believe they're fine, that there's not really a problem it's not a big deal. And in, in the years that I've gone on and had other interactions with people, I've come to these conclusions and, and it's been, this is the way it is, but why? How, how is it that somebody gets to a place in their life where it's that big of a mess, the hole's that deep, they have all of this stuff where they deny their responsibility, they believe they're fine, they'll lie through their teeth, even to themselves, how does it get there? And I came across a section of scripture that made this make sense to me. Paul's writing to a little church in Roman territory, and this church is really struggling with what it means to be Christian. They want to be Roman and Christian. And throughout the whole book, he's writing to them saying, no, I want you to think about life this way. I want you to think about life this way. And, th and they wanted both worlds. And in one section of scripture, it becomes really clear because he uses their own argument in the conversation. This is in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, verse 12. I have the right to do anything, you say. They've said to him, we're free. And what you're not going to find Paul arguing against is their freedom. Because it is central to who we are as followers of Jesus. It goes all the way back. God brought his people out of Egypt, freed them. Throughout the 
rest of the Tanakh, you're going to see him freeing them from captivity. And it's become central. Free, Jesus comes to free us from sin. You are free. You were meant to be free. You were meant to have this freedom. And this church knew that. And they were like, we should be able to do anything. We have this freedom from God. But they didn't just want the freedom from God. They were trying to exercise the freedom that they got from Rome. And some of the stuff that was happening in Rome that was legal at the time was gross. Rome legalized human trafficking and sex slavery. More than half of Roman people were slaves. But the promise of Rome was that you could earn your freedom. And these, these people in this church had earned their freedom. You would actually wear different clothes. It would communicate to everybody that I was free. And then they wanted to act on that freedom like every other Roman had. And their question to Paul was, why can't we go to the brothel? I'm free in Christ, and Rome doesn't have a problem with it. What's the big deal? And that's the question they're asking. This is about what he's going to talk to them about. I have the right to do anything is about their desire to start visiting brothels. Paul says this, but not everything is beneficial. He repeats their argument. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. Paul says you do have freedom. You absolutely have freedom. But I want you to ask, is what you're about to do beneficial? It doesn't benefit you, and it sure doesn't benefit the person that you're about to go see because you're supposed to be the light of the world. You're supposed to be me, representing me in this world to people, and you're going and using this person, and you're using freedom for that. Not only that, you're starting something that may take mastery over your life. It may grab you and hold you. You're using your freedom for an opportunity to become enslaved by something. Can I just tell you, we, we live in a culture where that happens quite a bit. A lot of different things. For some of us, it's food, right? It just, it just owns us. We don't have any control around it. For some of us, it's video games. You, you can get on there and lose a whole day and wonder what just happened. And it, and it owns you, it holds you. For some of you, it's pornography. But for others, in the quiet of our homes, because we're embarrassed by it, substances that we take, drugs, alcohol, to excess, dominate our lives and hold mastery over us. They numb us. Um, they, they do us in. And, and there's a place in you where you, maybe you're hoping that somebody could reach out and help you, but you're not going to do it yourself because you feel so numb. We actually found a song that expresses some of those very feelings where this person is caught in this numb place but remembers this one person who has the ability to maybe reach out and make a difference for them. So we want to sing that song to you, and then we're going to continue this conversation. Check this out. And hello, hello. I'm not where I'm supposed to be. 
I hope that you're missing me Cause it makes me feel young And hello, hello Last time that I saw your face Was recess in second grade And it made me feel young But won't you help me sober up Growing up and make me young that song, um, Would Somebody Help Me Sober Up? And the truth is, people can want to help you, but until you face the truth of your situation, it probably won't change. And that's what I'm hoping to do this morning, is to help you face the truth of the situation. There are a lot of people who are numbing themselves. That numbing is starting to cost us as a nation. In 2017, 72,000 people died from drug overdose. 
40,000 of those were from opioids alone. You're going to learn this morning why that's happening. That's a five-fold increase in 10 years. It's, it's t- just taken on a life of its own and costing all kinds of lives. Right now, in the U.S., 15 million people suffer from a drug-related um, problem in their life, a disorder. 15 million. If we were to try to give that context, that's like 16 people at Waypoints Church who are struggling that right now. Last month, 22 million people from middle school to adult age used marijuana just in one month. And if, again, we were to put that into context, that would be 25 people at Waypoint who are doing that. And the question isn't, have they gotten to a place where they're an addict? The question I have is they've crossed two other barriers to get to that place. They've somehow answered the question, I think this is beneficial for my life, and I don't think I'm going to be mastered by it, and that's why they're choosing to do it. Those two questions are sitting right there for people to ask and answer. And, and I've made a list. I've gone back and I've thought about all the conversations I've had with people who find themselves in this situation where they're dealing with an addiction of some sort. And I wrote down four things, four reasons that I think people start. They think it's beneficial or they think they're in control and they'll always be in control. Here's the four. One, all their friends are doing it, they're convinced it's normal and it's no big deal. If they're doing it, it must be safe. The government passed the law, it must be legal, it must be okay. So it's normal. Two, they don't believe in the gateway effect. We're going to talk about what that is, but where you open the door and it leads you to places you never thought that you would be. A lot of people don't buy into that. I think a lot of people don't understand what it's physically doing to your body, and they don't understand that when you start it, at first, it's just a decision of your will. Will I do this or not? But when you go far enough, then your body jumps in on it too and demands that you feed it certain things. And now it's not just a decision of the will. Now you're fighting your body too. And it becomes this battle that you have a hard time winning. And the last thing, and you're going to hear some people talk about this too. People choose to do this Because something else is going on in their life that they don't want to feel, and they decide to self-medicate. They're going to take something that's going to dull that, that's going to numb that, and they keep taking it, and they keep taking it until they are numbed to life, and then they are controlled and dominated by something. I told you at the top of this, um, I'm clueless about this kind of stuff. I'm not a counselor. I've talked to a lot of people. I've had more failures than not. But what I've decided to do this morning is to try to expose you to some people who have firsthand knowledge of the things that are going on in our area, right here, right now. Some from a personal standpoint and some from a medical standpoint. We're going to give it all to you. So uh, this is not their normal environment. They, they've spoken in front of people before. But uh, to do this in front of a church is different for them. Like they got in the first service, they survived it. But as they come forward, I'd like you to give them um, a good round of applause and encouragement because um, some of them are telling parts of their stories that are really hard, and um, that's where we're going to move next. So, Jeff, if you would make your way forward right now, and if I could get you guys to help me hand these chairs up, I want to give a place for them to sit, if that's okay.
perfect. Thanks. Jeff. Yeah. Um, you ended up addicted to something uh, during your lifetime. Can you give us some background of how that started and how that unfolded for you? Yep. Normally when I speak, I say, my name's Jeff and I'm an alcoholic. And then you say, hi, Jeff. Hi, Jeff. Okay. <laughs> um, the alcoholism was normal for me growing up, the alcohol, um, not the alcoholism that came later, but um, th like the first memory would be 12, 13 years old of getting a small bottle of Mogan David wine in my stocking at Christmas. Um, so it was just, drinking was kind of encouraged, it was never looked down on. And so I went from, so it was just kind of normal to to have that and then from there it turned to um, I started smoking pot when I was probably in ninth grade maybe tenth grade and uh, and I turned to that with a vengeance I smoked every day from for probably five or six years from the time I got up until I went to bed and uh, and then I turned to I got tired of the the paranoia, the social ineptness that it made me feel. But, but during that time, I also, when you talked about the gateway, I didn't speak about this before, but I mean, I, I tried everything. I mean, I, uh, cocaine, LSD, um, whatever, was, whatever was available, I was willing to, um, to sample, to try. And, and like I said, and then from there, it went to it went to the alcoholism, you know, just drinking all the time. And yeah, I remember when you were telling me about this, uh, you said your friends played a pretty big role in this. Um, you described it bigger than that, almost like your whole social network. Could you say some stuff about that? Yeah, from, because it was so normal, the alcohol, the addiction stuff, that it, I mean, it never was looked at as a, as a problem, so... You know, jump ahead to where I got sober because that's where it was able. I was able to distinguish the difference. Is um, I mean, I didn't eat at restaurants that didn't serve alcohol. Um, if it was an event at Grandma's house for Christmas, there was alcohol in the trunk of my car that we went out and drank, and so it was just at every single social. I mean, everything. It was just. It was all of my life when. When we left to go out to eat, my wife and I, she would automatically get in the driver's seat because it was already understood that I would probably had too much to drink already, you know, throughout the day. And uh, so when I, got, when I got sober, I was able to see that, that there, was a, there was a fence that I never saw before. And that when I got sober, I could see that there was a different way to live. And that when I was drinking, I, I lived on the other side, but I never knew that there was a fence. I never knew that there was a, another, another option, another way of a life without alcohol. 
Which, which raises the question then, if, that's, if your whole life was surrounded by that, how, how did you come to the realization that you weren't fine, that something was wrong? When I was 30, um, I started seeing that there was, that the alcohol was having a problem and I was afraid to, I was afraid to ask for help. Um, I always had faith in my life. I wasn't attending church at that time, um, but I never remember not believing and I knew that I didn't have guts and I didn't know the avenue that it would take to, to get sober. So I shot an arrow prayer up walking from my house down to my barn and said, God, help me get sober. And two weeks later, I was getting my third DUI. And even in the drunken stupor, I knew that that, that was an answer to the prayer. But it was still a long process. After that, I got sent to an evaluation through the courts. They call that a nudge from the judge. <laughs> and, but it's, it's whatever it takes. And, and through the evaluation, I lied like crazy about my alcohol use on the evaluation but I was truthful about my marijuana use, and they, so they decided that I needed to go to um, what they call IOP, intensive outpatient therapy, and then from there it was a mandatory two AA meetings a week, and, and I told them that I didn't have time for that, and they said, well, then you have a jail sentence. So I said, well, that sounded pretty good, that I would just, I would go to the five meetings a week, and, and through there it started, things finally started to make sense, but I started, I mean, I didn't stop drinking after I got the third DUI. I, I did for just a little bit. And, you know, they called the alcoholism cunning, baffling, and powerful. And so my mind said, um, geez, you know, Jeff, your only problem with drinking was driving. And I didn't have a driver's license for six months because it was suspended. So I drank for the next six months. But during that time, I was going through, um, I was going through the, um, the IOP and somebody, one of the counselors said that the stats say that, you know, one person out of the 15 in the class would stay sober. And I just told myself that I was going to be the one person that stayed sober. And um, You told me that when you made changes, uh, they weren't small. Uh, that the friends you were with, all of that, like there were some dramatic changes and some Weird responses from your friends, um, too. Can you tell us a little bit yeah. about that? When I first quit drinking, one of my good friends that I drank with all the time, um, he said, Jeff, there's, he didn't want to lose his drinking partner, so he said, Jeff, there's no way you can be an alcoholic because you don't drink any more than I do. Right. Yeah. And then our, friend, our social circle was totally cut off. I mean, him included, and, and that was okay. Um, I mean, I didn't want to hang out at bars. I didn't. Uh, do anything or so my my phone quit ringing and But that was okay. I mean, I was happy staying at home with my family and it was just uh, And there's still good friends to this day, but we had uh, It was probably eight seven or eight years maybe nine years before we ever Met up with a couple that didn't drink and they had gotten sober also and it was just refreshing to have yeah to have sober friends to do stuff with, but but I was okay you know, doing to, to 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 cut that off and to yeah make those changes, but it was hard. To how how were you one of the the fifteen? Why why after all of these years are you still one out of fifteen going along making it? What well, one of the 
one of the sayings that I always try to remember is, is that sobriety is a gift. And if you go back out, you may never get it again. Um, I know I asked you last service, and I think your answer was still worth hearing. What would you say to somebody who thinks they're fine? That it's a personal, yeah, it's, you, you have to figure it out. I mean, you have to, the first step in AA is admitting that you are powerless over alcohol and your life has become unmanageable. And until you're willing to do that, it doesn't matter what anybody in your life says, what books you read, what nudges you get, whether it's a nudge from the judge or whatever, it's whatever it takes. There's no stats that say that somebody that goes to an inpatient treatment center has any more success of staying sober than anybody that, like me, a nudge from the judge or somebody that walks in off the streets and looking for, you know, direction. But, okay. but it's personal. It has, to be, it, it has to be your choice. Got to face the truth. Yep. All right. Um, hard for him to share all that. Would you thank him as he heads off? Thank you. John, would you make your way up here as well? Uh, John has a different um, view of this. Uh, some, some of you know him as Johnny. Um, I asked him what he wanted to be called, and I said I will call him anything he wants. When you see the size of him, you'll understand why I say that. Um, but don't let the size fool you. Uh, heart of gold. He's just um, been... Uh, dealing with this from a different uh, venue point, and I know you hate sitting down, but you're going to be okay sitting for a little bit, and then you can get up and down as you want, all right? All right. Um, so tell me a little bit about your background and your experiences that caused you to uh, kind of be here today. So I, uh, I'm a retired police officer. You can hear me, right, everyone? Um, I joined the Elkhart City Police Department in 1996, uh, served 20 years. Um, during my time there, I spent approximately six years in an undercover uh, role, you know, buying drugs or managing people that would go in and buy drugs. We also worked vice crimes, which is like prostitution and what we called street-level drug deals where you have a problem on the street corner, we find out about it because they're dealing drugs, we would roll up in a, a UC vehicle, undercover vehicle. and I think more times than not, I, were, I was the guy in the back you truck. You were in the truck, hide. yeah so that somebody was dressed in a, a semi-police uniform, the undercover at the front would do a buy, and then we'd, we called a buy bus. We'd jump out and chase them down. And, um, and then about the last nine and a half years, I was uh, a homicide detective. So um, got a good look at the drug world uh, through my experience on EPD. I retired about three and a half years ago, and um, the current uh, prosecutor in this county, Vicki Becker, approached me and asked me to help her with her drug unit. It's called the ICE unit. It's the Intelligence and Covert unit, um, Enforcement Unit. <clears throat> and so I've been there for about three and a half roles as the commander. That's kind of a strong word. I'm really the guy that sits in the back and gets all the hard charges on the, on the front line, what they need. But uh, so, yeah, I have a little bit of background 
you know, world of drugs. Yeah, I asked if you had the opportunity to say one thing or to address one thing, what would it be? And you said it had to do with control. Um, so can you say more about this idea that people think they're in control? Sure. So a little bit of background on, on my job as an undercover officer, or even in homicide really, uh, is you have to learn to understand people and get to know them. Uh, because you're going to be working closely with them and for a lot of reasons. For safety, if something goes wrong in a house or wherever you are buying drugs. And it's in those relationships that you really get a uh, unique experience to learn about these people. Ask them how you got into it, why you got into it, how did you end up where you are. And I remember, um, I can't remember if I was in the vice unit or if I was undercover, but I was talking to a young lady who, uh, I can't remember if we arrested her or not. Often we'd go out and just keep in touch with the prostitutes because they were a great source of intelligence. Um, we'd buy them a, a meal and you would think that, that we would bought them a house. Um, and we'd find out, keep in touch what's going on um, in the streets. And I talked to this lady and it was kind of odd because um, this lady clearly lost all hope. So she used to have kids, she had a place that she was staying, she had a job, and she told me that the single worst decision she ever made was deciding to try drugs for the first time, thinking it was okay. Uh, she thought she could handle it, she thought that if it became bad, uh, she could stop it. Uh, but it took such a grip of her life, for whatever reason, that she began to try other drugs that she thought were bad initially, but they must not be that bad because this drug wasn't. And she ended up losing everything. She lost her kids, lost her, her uh, place she was staying, she lost her job, and she found herself uh, turning to prostitution to facilitate um, her habit. And I just remember, you know, for those of you that don't know people that have been through this, uh, they're probably just words. I don't know if they're sinking in or, or what, how it makes you feel, but to watch a woman that has lost everything, her dignity, her kids, everything, to a drug uh, that she was still addicted to, um, it kind of yanked out my heart chains a little bit, you know, uh, these people that lose hope. And, and her message to me, and it became my message to my kids, is your worst decision you can ever make is trying it for the first time, thinking that if suddenly it becomes bad, um, that you can stop. Um, and I used to tell that to my kids growing up. Um, so, I, I, yeah. Yeah, um, I think that's helpful. Another thing that um, you talked about that I, was, I guess I was surprised on when you talked about this idea that people think they're in control, the side that they're not in control of is what's happening with the drugs before they get to them. And you sent me a slide that I thought I'd let you explain so that um, you can, this will help uh, people understand what's happening with this epidemic. It's the part where I can stand up, Yeah, right? yeah, you won't great. Me. So we have a huge problem with meth in this town. Anybody know that? Just show of hands. Who knows that we have a problem with meth? When I was an undercover officer, and we're going back a few years, I won't date myself, but it's been a while, um, it was kind of like this. Johnny would buy drugs from so-and-so. He would buy drugs from so-and-so. He would get it from this person. We never really was able to trace it back to its origin, usually. 
Now we know with our intelligence and the people we're dealing with, you know, we're getting our meth straight from Mexico, from the cartels. You have literally, you have cartel people from Mexico in your county right now. We've identified it. Some of the hierarchy we've got uh, identified. We work close with the DEA um, on this stuff. So that's why it's a big problem in town. That's why you don't see as many as these home meth meth labs that we used to is because it's coming so much from Mexico, it's, it's a business. They, they can undersell everybody. Where one guy used to sell a certain amount for 1,000, now you get that same amount for 300. Having said that, um, these cartel people, they're business people, they know how to make money. We have an opioid epidemic across America and Elkhart is, is we have a problem in Elkhart as well. Um, what we're learning is that the cartel has learned that heroin is a natural opioid. They've learned that they got some chemists together and they started making a synthetic opioid called fentanyl. Um, it's already used in the medical fields, but they're making it on their own, separate from any you know, law, uh, any, any, they're making it illegally. And what they, it's, it's a lot easier to manufacture this fentanyl than it is the heroin. So they still have the heroin, opera heroin operation going, but what they use the fentanyl for is they sprinkle it or mix it in with the heroin, and it makes it uh, seem much more powerful. And that's because fentanyl is somewhere around 50 to 80 times more potent than morphine, fentanyl is. The reason why we're having an overdose epidemic is because the people that are usually using heroin don't know their heroin is being stepped on with fentanyl. So fentanyl is so powerful they go ahead and bang it or inject it, they eject it, um, and they die. And they don't even know that they were taking fentanyl. And so to illustrate the, the power uh, of fentanyl, what you see on the right-hand side of your screen is that's how much heroin it takes to affect an overdose and kill you. It's 300 milligrams, Th or 30, 30 milligrams, I'm yeah. sorry. Uh, to the left of that, you'll see fentanyl. It takes two to three uh, milligrams to, to kill you. And then to the left of that, you see something called carfentanil. And the only known use that I could find uh, for carfentanil is they use it in to, to tranquilize elephants. If they're gonna shoot them and make them fall down so they can whatever do to them. That's the only known use for carfentanil. The other problem with fentanyl is that you can absorb it through your skin. So a lot of police officers are dealing with this problem of and, and we are no exception in the, our undercover unit, uh, we have to be very careful because if it's on paper or we, they had two officers uh, overdose, they saved them, but in Ohio, simply because they, they, real, they did a traffic stop, they realized there was drugs in the car, the person in the car poured out their fentanyl on the carpet because they didn't want to get in trouble for it. Well, the cops put their hands as they was looking under the seat on the carpet, didn't even know. And uh, they started overdosing. And because of a new drug called uh, Narcan, uh, their lives were saved. So what, one of the things we do to try to add to our intel for the undercover unit is we track overdose deaths in Elkhart County, and I don't know what it's up to. It was in the teens last time I checked, and that was a couple months ago. Uh, but we also get toxicology reports on these people to find out if there was anything in their blood that helped cause their death. And it's very, very common to find heroin it's not uncommon anymore to find fentanyl. And about two, maybe three years ago, probably two years ago, 
We had one case with carfentanil, and I'm pretty sure none of those people that died knew that they were uh, ingesting fentanyl. So fentanyl is really kind of the driving force. We already had an epidemic with heroin. We have an epidemic of, of drug use in America, but um, the deaths are more attributable to uh, the fentanyl as far as opioids are concerned. And of course, you're going to hear a doctor talk. They, they've got their own. And there's another side of the opioid problem in, in the medical field as well. But. You called me Wednesday and said that in Elkhart County, um, it was shocking to me, uh, so I want you to speak to it, that five people had overdosed this week on marijuana. And, and I was like, what? How is that even possible? Yeah, it's crazy, right? So first of all, there's no such thing as synthetic marijuana. When you hear that, that that's, that's kind of a minimization phrase. There's a plant-like material that overseas it comes a lot from China, some from Mexico. Uh, I don't even know what the plant is. It's a vegetative type plant, and they sprinkle it with different types of chemicals. And so it's really hard for us in the law enforcement field to uh, enforce the laws on people using synthetic drugs because the DEA has to, they have to find this chemical and figure out what it is, and then they have to say it's illegal to ingest this chemical. By the time they do that, the drugs that are coming in, they're a new chemical. So is it really illegal or not? So that's, a, that's an issue. But uh, more in point to your question, um, the people are taking marijuana or the synthetic type marijuana, and to try to make you feel like you're getting more bang for your buck, they're doing things, in this case, uh, they take the, the marijuana or the synthetic marijuana, okay, and they put it in a bag and they put bug killer, you know, the, like the roach spray of the bug killer, you press and walk away and it's in a can. They'll put it in that bag and let it permeate the vegetative, whatever it's, whether it's marijuana or the, the synthetic, and then they sell it. And no one knows what they're ingesting. And that's what happened last week. It happened in Indianapolis as well where, you know, there's this thing now to try to make theirs better than the next guy's in the in the the uh, steps they'll take to try to make you think you're getting more bang for your buck is, is killing people or nearly killing people. Uh, the last question I have for you is, uh, there's a lot of people who say the gateway effect isn't real. I've read those articles, but I've also uh, read a lot of studies that suggest that it's a real thing. From your experience, that gateway, you start with one, it leads to another, it opens the door to another, and it takes you further than you'd expect. Do you see that happening in people's lives? Um, I do. From my vantage point, I can't even imagine people making an argument that, that it's not a gateway drug. Or I tell them, after we talk for a while, it at least has the potential. You never really know. It doesn't mean that everyone that tries a certain drug is going to end up overdosing someday. But there's certainly the potential um, to do that. More people than not that I've dealt with, whether they've been confidential sources for me or I've ran into them in homicides because... Um, like 80% of all of our crimes, it can be tracked down to some drug issues at certain points. So we, we talk to a lot of these people a lot of times, and um, they almost all say it started when, you know, either with marijuana or drinking, they didn't think it was bad, and if that's not bad, why is the next drug bad? They see their friends doing it, um, their friends wouldn't lie to them, you know, they, they feel like they have a control that they don't really have. Um, and then a lot of these people I deal with, uh, they learn the hard way. And even when they've lost everything, they, some of them still recognize I made a bad choice. I thought I can control it, I didn't. 
And the other ones that don't are because they're living a life of crime still, thinking that, that they have control, but they're, they're robbing, stealing, and thieving, and selling drugs to support their habit. They just haven't come to the realization that they really aren't in control, and the realization that their life is out of control because of it. So yes, I, I definitely think uh, it, it's a gateway drug, All right. or has the potential. Okay, thanks. Hey, would you uh, thank him for being here? Thanks so much. Doc, we had you stand out of the light last time, and I didn't like that, so we're going to move these out of the way so that you can stand in the middle of the carpet. And uh, Doc Barco is going to come, and he's going to talk about uh, the last uh, part of this that I want you to hear from somebody. Is I, I think sometimes people start this because they don't understand um, what it's going to do to your body, and, um, and Doc is seeing this stuff, and he's going to be able to talk to it. So welcome him. All righty. I get the, like the song said, uh, hopefully part of what I'm going to show you helps you sober up. Um, I will definitely agree with John, uh, well, and Blair's type. Elkhart, we are not fine when it comes to drugs and what they do with us. I think I've seen, and any provider that's in this room um, have seen in their practice where people feel like they're fine until something medical hits them and then they're not fine. And then it's amazing how even when they're presented with a medical issue, they still continue to use whatever it is that they're using. And I know in my practice, I like how Jeff brought up with uh, AA, the first step is you first have to admit that you are powerless and that this thing has control over you. I have noticed in my practice, whether it's someone doing heroin, marijuana, smoking, alcohol, uh, that I can talk to them blue in the face. I can show them, and I'll apologize, some of the pictures that you guys are going to see. Um, I can show them things like that. I can give them all the statistics in the world. Their wife, their spouse can nag them until they're done getting nagged at. It's until they finally make that decision that I've had enough and I'm willing to make a change. So. With alcohol, thank you. With alcohol, um, a lot of people, it's so common, how Jeff said. I mean, I know when I grew up, every event we went to, there was alcohol. Um, thank goodness I never got started when I was young because I knew what I wanted to do in my life and I didn't want to do anything that would screw it up. Um, but it was everywhere. I could easily, uh, we never got alcohol in our stocking, but I could easily probably would have uh, got some if I had to. Of course, everybody knows alcohol affects your brain. I know anybody that's gone to college probably has lost a few brain cells during college with alcohol. Um, but over time, it can give you what's called an encephalopathy where your memory goes. Um, they start acting, well, depression. Depression is a big thing with alcohol. You move on down. Um, if I hear of someone who's had throat cancer, I usually will say, were they a smoker or a drinker? Because odds are they were probably both, and that led to their larynx, their esophagus, their tongue cancer. Go down, I got a picture of this here a little bit. Uh, heart, um, it, it's a poison, alcohol is a poison, and it will poison your muscle of your heart. So all of a sudden you get someone who says, man, I can't walk up a flight of stairs, I'm short of breath. 
Um, and come to find out their heart is double the size that it has been because the muscle no longer can beat like it should. Um, kidneys, it can have effect. Pancreas, um, I hope anyone who ever drinks never gets this, but pancreatitis, it's very painful. feels like someone's stabbing you in the gut, um, and yet it's poisoning the pancreas. Uh, the intestine, we believe it has an increased risk of colon cancer with those who drink. Um, the liver, got a picture of this coming up here in a little bit. Uh, cirrhosis, people have probably heard of that. Um, and when uh, the liver is affected, the blood flow through the liver cannot get through, and so the blood needs to try to find ways of getting around the liver, and you can develop um, esophageal varices. One picture I could not find, I wish I could. Um, it will also go through the abdominal wall, and it gives a Medusa-like effect on someone's abdomen. You see these dilated veins on their abdomen. It's kind of cool looking, but anything cool in medicine is usually not good for the patient. So, um, next picture. So this is a bleeding esophageal varice. So this is someone who uh, probably was doing fine, felt fine, until all of a sudden they probably had an upset stomach, felt very weak, may have passed out, who knows, or they started throwing up blood. And so this is a scope looking down into someone's esophagus. Um, off to the right where it's spurting out, that's a big old varicose vein in the esophagus that just ruptured. Uh, I've had two people, I believe, in my career who have died from bleeding esophageal varices. These are cool to treat. You put a scope down, you put a clip over that, but um, like I said, cool things in medicine is not good for you guys. Next picture. This is a picture of a heart, normal on the left, alcoholic on the right. It gets dilated, the muscles become weak, and they balloon out. Um, you don't want your heart looking like this. Next. Fetal alcohol syndrome, I do OB as part of my practice, and I will have ladies who unfortunately may have drank for, didn't take their birth control, got pregnant, and all of a sudden it's like, did that affect my baby? And I hate to say it, we don't know. There is no safe limit of alcohol in pregnancy. And women who continue to drink during the pregnancy, their babies can come out having certain characteristics. Don't look at your neighbors and compare faces right now, okay? You can do that afterwards. Um, I did find one picture, I didn't want to include it, but uh, they were trying to compare, it was this picture and uh, Bernie Sanders next to each other, and they were pointing out different things. So you guys can Google that and see what you think. Next. And of course, a healthy liver on the top, a cirrhotic liver on the bottom. The liver is an amazing organ. It tries to regenerate itself. It's, it's probably the only organ we have where you can transplant part of it from someone else and it can almost grow back into a normal size uh, liver again. But when it gets poisoned and damaged and poisoned and damaged, it tries to regenerate and then you get this knobbly looking uh, organ that unfortunately affects your clotting, it affects your immune system, how you get rid of just normal chemicals in your food and then can't do it. Next. And once again, don't compare people around you, but once that liver starts going, you get jaundiced. And babies, this is not uncommon to see in their first two to five days of life, but in an adult, when their skin is yellow, their eyes are yellow, that's not good. That's usually one of the last things we're seeing, so don't compare people around you right now. Next. Marijuana, from a medical standpoint, marijuana is one of those drugs 
that everybody just thinks it's fine. No big deal, doc. I'm just gonna help my anxiety. I'm gonna just chill out, okay? Um, it's always funny when they come into the office and they've been smoking. It smells like a skunk. I'm assuming people have smelled marijuana. Um, but when they come in and I walk in the room and I go, what you been smoking? Oh, I don't smoke. I go, really? Then did you bring a dead skunk in with you? And they're like, oh, you can smell it on me? And I'm like, yeah, you're used to smelling it. I'm not, and so yeah, you stink right now. Um, but they usually started with anxiety, and I like how Jeff actually made this comment in his talk. They start with anxiety to help calm them down, but what I've seen is people's lives have changed to the point where they either become more anxious or they become paranoid to the point where they won't let their child walk to school by themselves. They won't let the child stay overnight at a friend's house because they're afraid of what may happen at that friend's house. And until they get off of it, it's amazing. I've had a couple of people that have gotten paranoid, got off marijuana, and they are totally, totally a different person once they're off of it. It can help lead to um, different cancers, any smoking, any, it's so common sense. Whatever you're bringing into your bodies that isn't supposed to be going in your body can help cause cancer, so lung cancer. Um, men, actually flip up the next one. I like how the dots are everywhere. Low testosterone. I've, got, I, <laughs> I've had so many guys here lately. Um, those commercials with low T. Um, one of the questions I'm actually starting to ask now because of the state to the north of us having marijuana legalized, uh, a lot of Michigan guys are coming in complaining of fatigue, tiredness, uh, no energy, loss of muscle mass. And I'm asking him, do you smoke marijuana? And I'm starting to realize there's a lot of correlation between smoking marijuana and having low testosterone. So if that's enough to hit guys where it hurts, don't smoke. Um, addiction, memory loss, paranoia, lung problems, appetite irregularities. I always get a kick out of that one. Yeah, they do get munchies, I guess. I was out in Colorado once, it was great. It was a legalized marijuana and right next door was a Taco Bell, yeah. I thought I should have taken a picture of that. It was so ironic, it was great. Um, and number 11, poor decisions, really? Oh, okay. Next, opioids, uh, John alluded to this. Um, opioids, unfortunately, the medical world, we contributed to part of this. Um, back about 10 years ago, uh, pain became the fifth vital sign. And if people don't know this, uh, docs get, uh, we get graded, we got uh, um, patient satisfaction scores, uh, some of our pay is based on patient satisfaction scores, and if pain is the fifth vital sign, and you're in pain, and I'm not treating your pain, you're not gonna give me a good patient satisfaction score, so there's a lot of docs who said, fine, we'll treat your pain. Um, and I never did this, but, a lot of docs did, gave out Vicodin, Norco, like it was candy, because they wanted good patient satisfaction scores. It wasn't good for the patient, but it helped you know, our scores. So what can opioids do? The biggest cause of death is if you take too much of it, it slows your breathing. And then you basically suffocate and you die. Thank goodness we have Narcan that law enforcement now has to help save people um, 
I've actually had to get that once in my office, which was quite scary. Um, slowed breathing, itching, um, you know, during pregnancy, I have had a, uh, I hate to even say how many kiddos that I've seen withdraw from opioids that mom was using during her pregnancy that were not prescribed by me, but she was getting it from work or a friend. Trailer factors, you can get almost anything you want. You guys knew that, right? Yeah, okay. Um, maybe that's shocking to you, no. Um, next. Uh, methamphetamines. Um, this is why it's such an epidemic, and this is why people this time of the year, uh, you can't get Sudafed. Um, you have to sign your life away from it because they use Sudafed to make this. Although I just heard from a patient that apparently Adderall is being used. It's easier to make methamphetamine from Adderall than it is from Sudafed. So um, we're starting to have actually shortages of Adderall as well. They get sleepy, paranoia, severe depression, cracked teeth. Oh, when I get someone that comes in, and the picture I'm going to show is a very, it was a nice picture. I found some more ugly pictures. But if I have someone who comes in with ugly looking teeth, okay, granted, they may not be a good brusher. If they're a female, I'm going to ask her if she has bulimia because they're throwing up all the time and they're ruining their teeth. But if it's really bad, I'll ask them if they're smoking uh, meth. Um, some of the paranoia that they get, skin infection, sores, and acne, uh, they feel like they have um, creepy crawlies in their skin, and they'll dig at their skin. Um, seizures, sudden death. Um, I had one gentleman that did get arrested, I didn't tell first service this, um, homicidal. When he got on meth, he went nuts and ended up uh, killing a couple people. Um, and he, it was not his fault. It was the drugs that did it, and he did the drugs because something else was wrong in his life. As Blair had said, you know, it was somebody else's issue. They didn't want to deal with it. Next is a couple pictures. This is a nice picture of teeth. Um, some of the other ones are more rotted and black. Once again, don't look at fellow table people and compare their teeth right now. And the last one, and I've had a couple of people walk into my office where they're picking. They're picking, and they're digging their skin raw. And so, I like how John said, don't start in the first place. I try to talk to all my teenagers in the office about this, um, especially my pregnant ladies. It's amazing uh, how many pregnant women are using drugs, and then who knows, marijuana with kiddos. They're like, oh, it's safe. And it's like, we don't know that. We don't know yet if a little baby, while well, mom's pregnant, smoking marijuana, who knows? Five, 10 years from now, we'll start having more data on how they are in school, where how they perform, how their reading level is, we just don't know. So just don't start in the first place. The old Nike slogan, just say no. Um, but yeah, I see it from my side. It's not a pretty sight, and we are not fine in Elkhart County. Thanks, Doc. Uh, band, I'm gonna have you come up. Let me just say this. Your friends might be doing it. You might be trying to avoid some other things. You might think it's normal. You might think you're control. But maybe you need to stop and ask these two questions. Is there any benefit to, to doing this to my life at all? And we just gave you a bunch of reasons why maybe you should evaluate that and the stuff that you should be looking at. Is there any benefit to this. And then the second part, 
Is it worth the risk that you could be mastered by it? That it controls you? And if, and if those are a possibility, you gotta be careful. And this is, hap- this is happening in our community. It's one of those things that's going down that it's embarrassing and so we don't wanna talk about it. I'll, I'll just tell you right now, if it's happening with your family, you need to find somebody that you can speak with that's professional. We're not professional counselors, but we can help you find somebody who can do that sort of thing. But they, um, the people who are wrestling with this need to start coming to the truth about this for themselves. And if, and if they're not, and they're gonna keep going down that path, then you need to talk to a professional counselor who'll help you figure out what boundaries you have to have so that you can have a healthy relationship, so that you can find a way through this as they kind of self-implode. You won't change unless you face the truth. Is it beneficial for you? Is it worth having your life dominated by this other thing? I want you to think about that as we close with worship and then Michael closes up.